Let's pray together as we begin to think about the God worth proclaiming. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the more we meditate on you, the more we read about you through the scriptures, the more we want to experience you, walk closely with you, and proclaim you so that blind eyes might see, deaf ears might be um, able to hear and delight in you. We just would love other people to know you because you are just the absolute best, most majestic being in all the universe. And to not know you is such a shame. It's more than a shame. It's a missed opportunity to live truly meaningfully. And we pray, Father, um, help us to be encouraged as Paul proclaims you, the God worth proclaiming. Amen. From time to time, I like to be able to uh, Google stuff and using the autocomplete function. Where's my clicker gone? Oh, can someone run over here if the clicker is otherwise located over there? Um, but what I like to do is I like to just be able to um, use the autocomplete auto function on Google. And I start typing something like, why are Christians so? And then see what comes up. What are the most searched? Obviously, I clear my cookies. Um, you know, and the cash and all the other stuff, the IT things that I don't know, um, to kind of find out. They can't seem to find the clicker everywhere. It's, it's not there. It's here. <laughs> Does this qualify as a man look? Um, okay, let's, let's not go there right now, okay? But here are some of the things that came up on that, okay? Why are Christians so defensive? Why are Christians so mean, so intolerant? That was a few years ago that I last did that search, and I like to save it. Uh, and so this is what I did earlier today as well. You won't be able to read it, so I'll read it for you. Why are Christians so hypocritical and judgmental? Why are three things that Christians do that non-Christians despise? Why are Christians so judgmental again? And why the Christian right worships Donald Trump? I mean, if you're the Christian right here this evening, do you worship Donald Trump? If you're wondering why you do, you can have a look at that. Um, when it comes to conspiracy theories, is Christianity part of dot, dot, dot? Interesting, isn't it? But I would suspect that at least some of those people, and I did the same thing with YouTube, I'll show you in a minute, um, some of those people would want to know the answers to those questions because they might have no clue what Christians might say or believe about any of these things. When I went to YouTube, why are Christians again so judgmental, hated, why are they voting for Trump? Because that was a few years ago. Why are they against tattoos? Why are Christians poor? Why are Christians broke? And today, one of the videos on that was everything wrong with Christians. In what, 14 minutes? 12 minutes. <sighs> Go and watch that later on and find out what's wrong with you. Not just what's wrong, but everything. And what's interesting is, what would be our response if we were talking with someone who actually does think we are judgmental, hypocritical, or associated with conspiracy theories, or anything like that, how can we sometimes, even when we do answer comments that people make, because that's the hard thing, isn't it? We would love for someone to just come up to us and say, just tell me what you believe. And I'd be like, yes, <laughs> it's gotta, I'm getting the espresso one right now. But oftentimes, the struggle that I have the most is instead of just asking me a question, what people might do is just drop a comment, a comment which I will come across as judgmental or hateful 
if I do, then go on a tirade, just saying, well, let me give you 50 reasons, fella, why you're wrong. Not the way to go. And so, how is it that Paul addresses a crowd that not only doesn't believe in the Bible, but believes in, apparently, everything else? So, in Acts 17, we're going to think about this God worth proclaiming. Because the thing is, as we read it, they weren't mostly Jews, were they? Um, they certainly weren't all Christians. And how does he talk to them? Because in verse 22, if you have your Bibles open in front of you, as we begin thinking about it, Paul is in Athens, the sort of Cambridge, uh, the university city of great renown of the ancient world. And he stands up and he says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. In 30 seconds that I'm going to give you right now, Paul is addressing a group of people, very religious. Can you just in the next 30 seconds find me the first verse where Paul mentions Jesus by name? Go for it. 30 seconds for you. If you're watching the sermon from home, you might like to just press the forward arrow. Five, four, three, two. Nobody for a prize? That is the very reason why many scholars, when looking at Acts chapter 17 in this particular speech um, at the Areopagus, at Mars Hill, they would say Paul failed. He set out to tell people the gospel doesn't even mention Jesus by name. He alludes to Jesus, and that's part of his wonderful way uh, of proclaiming the gospel. He's going, there's only one man who was raised from the dead um, as proof that his message was true, as we look at the end. But obviously, that says something about how do we engage with people that perhaps have never heard the name of Jesus before. Softly, softly. And so he didn't fail. And you might be tempted to think he did, because when you look at verse 34 preached this awesome, awesome message. Some believed. Some. Some sneered in verse 32. Some said, you can talk to me again about this. It's hardly the hundreds or thousands of people earlier in the book of Acts, is it? But Paul didn't fail. Don't think that. If they hadn't heard of Jesus at all, ever, this first significant conversation was already massive. And so, how did Paul talk with people of other religions? He could have mentioned Jesus' miracles. He could have said, let me tell you what Jesus did. How amazing. He healed the sick. He healed the blind. Absolutely fantastic. He raised someone from the dead. Could have done that. He could have talked about how Jesus is the Messiah, God's anointed one, his promised one, fulfilling all of the prophecies in the Old Testament. But the problem is, they didn't believe in the Bible, did they? They didn't know about the Hebrew Scriptures. So why start there? That's perhaps like me talking with one of my atheist friends. If I say you should believe the Bible because the Bible says so, that means nothing to her, does it? And so he starts where they are. What if I don't believe the Bible? Are we prepared to begin the conversation somewhere else, perhaps? He knows that they are polytheists, believe in many gods. 
If he knew that perhaps they were hedonists, people who simply pursued pleasure, he would have started somewhere else. And so that's why our first point this evening is know your audience. I think I picked the worst possible color for you to be able to see that. Um, but if you're taking notes, do write down. And as we think about verses 16 to 21, Paul shows us that knowing our audience is really, really important. Who is his audience? Who is he talking to? What did they believe? And in verse 18, we have a bit of an answer to that. Part of the people who are in the crowd are Epicureans and Stoics. Epicureans, people who believe, you know, the gods, they do exist, they're out there, but they're not involved in my personal life. They're not interested in doing something that affects me. And so, the goal of my life is to live fully, avoiding pain, pursuing pleasure, you know, you know, and being not afraid of death because after death, there's nothingness. There's no me to worry about anything wrong that I might have done. And they particularly did not believe that God would judge. The Stoics, you learn about God's existence by using the logos, by using uh, reason and logic. And it's interesting that Paul knows exactly who they are, and he takes that into account, into his approach, as I said, by not starting with lots of Bible verses, for example. I wonder if you often think about who your audience is, if you're a Christian here this evening, or if you're not yet a believer, then is that what you've experienced? Or is what you experienced someone renting at you when you ask a question? We've all fallen into that trap sometimes. Um, I know that my mother doesn't believe as I do. And as soon as I became a Christian when I was 15, mom, if you're watching, love you. And I came home and she had loads of statues of all sorts of saints, you know, because that's what we do in Brazil. And I lovingly just said to mom, mom, God will smash down all of these statues. That is, that is sinful. He will judge. Now, that's, that's not wise, is it? That is not, I mean, you guys are like younger than me. <laughs> And you already know that that is not wise. And so renting is very different to knowing, you know what, guys, I know that you don't believe in, for example, the resurrection of the dead. Let me start somewhere else, and I'll build up to belief in the resurrection. And in every generation, there is an aspect of the good news about Jesus that seems to be highly offensive to other people, isn't there? Perhaps for us is Christian sexual ethics. Anything that we say about sex and sexuality seems to strike just a wrong chord with a bunch of people. And so I don't think that means we avoid it and we never talk about it, but it does mean that we don't want to unnecessarily burn bridges by starting there. At least not if we can help it. And so I wonder, do we know where to start with our neighbors, friends, colleagues? Have people known where to start with you this evening? Um, if you uh, not yet a Christian. We want to know what the other person believes before uh, speaking, perhaps, and I wonder if you know. I think the best way sometimes is to ask, to ask questions, and I think Jesus did this a bunch, didn't he? Someone would come in with the wrong idea, and Jesus would say, well, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Uh, he would ask people lots of questions, because when you ask someone a question, often the person who has got the grenade, and they just want to ask a question, pull the pin, drop off, and just leave, and leave you sort of squirming, trying to find the answer to the question, you know? Am I going to hell because I'm dot, dot, dot? I just want to see you squirm and your blood boil. And all of a sudden, a question breaks that down and puts the onus on the other person to think. I think one way to do this is 
by thinking about these two questions, which I put over there. And there's an author called Greg Kukul, um, that, uh, don't laugh at his name, that um, has this approach that says, let's think about variations of these two questions. One is, what do you mean by that? And number two is, why do you believe what you believe? Now imagine here with me for a second, uh, you're chatting to a mate at school, uh, perhaps someone at work, and in the midst of some banter, you know, your mate Tony, just says his name is Tony Stark, um, he asks you what you did last weekend, and you mention, was that church, you know, was that KFC, whatever, whatever you're doing um, at church, and they just say, you know, I couldn't believe in God because there's no evidence, and at that point you just think, man, I just want to tell you 50 reasons. But no, that's going to come across as hateful or judgmental. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you a question. How about this? What God don't you believe in? It's interesting, isn't it? What God don't you believe in? Describe him to me. And as that other person perhaps says it's a God that's misogynistic, you'll say, I don't either. My God has created women, loves them. I don't believe in a killjoy. I don't believe in a God that is just sexually repressed, that says that sex is no fun. Well, I don't believe in that God either. And then you start to show them that this God is different. This God is a God to salivate after. And that's what Paul does in verse 24 onwards, isn't it? Let's have a quick look at it. Let's read that again. The God who made the world. This is the God I'm talking about. And everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples but by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Love that. Complete. I think the more we ponder on who the God of the Bible is, in contrast with any other belief out there, I think a few things might happen. One is that someone begins to be won over. Wow, he really is amazing. He's not, he's not only not misogynistic, but he elevates women in the Bible. Wow, I didn't know that. Tell me more about that. Not only is he not against sex, but he made it. He created it. He wants people to delight in it because it reflects his love. That's a surprise. See, the people begin to be won over, or perhaps they don't believe or don't understand. And as we see in the final verses there, 32 to 34, some people will sneer. Some people will say, I'm interested, tell me again. And some people will actually believe. And from verse 23 on, he's going to proclaim a God that is utterly unlike any of the other gods that these people have heard of. Who is this God? He's the creator God. He's not part of creation, like some Eastern religions might say. He can't be contained in a temple, a shrine. You don't need to cross your legs in a particular way in order to find him because he's not far in verse 27 from any of us. He's deeply personal. He's involved in our lives. Contrast that with the idea of even the surrounding nations of ancient Israel, where you need to give food to Marduk or some other Canaanite deity because otherwise they won't function. They created you to be minions, not this God. We want other people to be envious of the God that we love and know. He's the creator God who gave us everything that is good. He gives us purity, marriages that reflect his love, a life of singleness that shows for the Christian that they are so complete with Jesus that they are not a second-class person because they're not having sex. A life of honesty and hope. And so I want to say, what do you believe, Tony? He says, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. 
I said, well, Tony, you said that you needed maybe some evidence. Do you have any evidence for your atheism? And he would say, no. I said, well, would you be willing to investigate a little bit more about the evidence that I do have? Would you be willing to do that? Doesn't it seem perhaps a bit unfair? You don't need evidence for your belief, your atheism, but I need evidence for my Christianity. Does that seem unfair to you? Let's have that conversation. And so know your audience. And these two questions can help us. What do you mean? Why do you believe it? But also, we have a number two. Oh, there we go. I put these slides and I forget what's in them. Replace religion with relationship. Looking at verse 22 uh, to verse 28, we want to create a connection, a bridge between what we believe and what we know other people believe. How does Paul treat their beliefs? You look at verse 22 and 23. He builds a bridge. He says, look, I know that you're very religious. I can see that. I know that about you. I've been paying attention to you. I care about you and our friendship. I looked carefully. And I've seen that because you don't want to upset any of the gods, you've tried from A to Z to have every god listed there. And just in case you got it wrong, you've got one called the unknown god. And you put some stuff in that shrine to make sure that, you know, you're hedging your bets. Paul knows and respects where they're coming from, and he wants to build a bridge. He knows their sacred books enough that in verse 28, do you see that? He can quote from memory. That's amazing. Wow. And he can quote the bits from memory that draw a bridge. Oh, okay, this quote kind of shows that you're, you see that you're made, made in the image of the gods. Let me tell you more, more about the one God that you're made in the image of. That's the difference between religion and relationship. And then he begins to talk about the uniqueness of our God. How do we treat the beliefs of the people that we are wanting to share Jesus with? Are we arrogant, maybe? That's only too easy for me. Because I love apologetics, defense of the faith, philosophy, you know, thinking about rational thought and rules of logic. Are we respectful? Do we, are we open enough to hear what people are saying as we ask them what they believe so that we can find how to draw them to Jesus. If someone can't see why their beliefs are not good enough, it'll be very hard for them to see why they need the Lord Jesus and only what he can give. And so he begins the work of replacing their religion with relationship by showing a link between what they believe and the true God of the Bible. And so he says, I see that you have this unknown God. Let me tell you more about him. And one of the things that draws my attention is in verse 16, because Paul has been looking around and he's been open and caring towards others, he's not just disappointed, he's distressed, he's upset that there are people out there who believe that it's enough, enough to believe in a God that needs you, that is needy. And he says, no, man, I'm upset because of the truth that I know that I want you to know. There are certain things that upset us, no matter the culture, because we so deeply um, know that they are true, we so deeply value these things, that I will never allow you to criticize them. That's often a measure of how dear these things are to us. For example, your mama jokes. Amazing. Every culture. You criticize someone's mom, even if they hate their mom, they will punch you. It's going to happen. Okay, because even friends at school that I had who actually were quite nasty to their moms, if I said, well, your mom is so big, I, already my eye is blue, okay? 
And so it's so dear to me, so ingrained, that I cannot let you damage the honor of my mother. Here Paul so loves God, so loves the people that he sees, that he is greatly distressed that the honor of God is being damaged because they don't know his love. Not only don't they know his love, he thinks he's so small that he can just be the unknown God in the corner. He says, no, let me tell you, he is much bigger than that. Is that how we feel when we see people worshiping money, technology, worshiping their kids, worshiping the relationship that they want to have and feel they're incomplete without? All of these false opportunities to worship are like verse 27, people groping around in the dark, but not being willing to finish the journey and find the love of Jesus. These good things being turned into God things. And so I wonder, are we prepared to let that outrage fuel our desire to say, mate, I know we've been friends for a long time, and you know that I go to church, you know that I'm a Christian and all that. I know you've never really wanted to know, but, you know, we've been friends for a while. Can I just share this with you? It's okay if you say no, or if you say I don't believe as you do, but because we're friends, and this means a lot to me, I just wanted to share that with you. Are we willing to let that great desire for the honor of God to be seen and proclaimed transform our friendship like that? It's a risk, isn't it? It's a risk. And so he begins to get the idea of religion that they have and say, let me tell you about a God who is much, much better than what you expect. It's kind of like many of the conversations that I've had with people. And I remember having um, conversations, for example, where I see that someone perhaps is addicted to porn and they long for intimacy. It's what they long for, intimacy with another human being. And I want to say, let me affirm that. Your desire for intimacy is good. The way that you are pursuing it will only leave you empty-handed. Let me tell you about how the God that created you wants intimacy with you. How you can experience his presence, his love. Let me tell you about him. I've taken the kind of wrong aspect and said, let me inject God in here and show you he is better than what you hope for. Sometimes we need to do this in our friendships. Without two questions, imagine you and Michelle working on a bit of RE homework, you know, or philosophy and ethics, whatever it is. Because Michelle is a Muslim, she says that she believes in Jesus. She says, we're the same, you and I. We're basically, you know, people who believe in Jesus. There's Jesus in the Quran. And we just go to different buildings. I go to a mosque. We go to a church. What do you say? What's the bridge that you can build to replace re religion with relationship? Now, you know your audience, you know that Michelle believes the Quran, you know that she believes Jesus is mentioned in the Quran, so here's a few questions that you might want to ask her. You might want to say, hey, what does the Bible say about Jesus? Let's talk about that. It says, Jesus says in this one time, in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. Is that what it says in the Quran as well? Let's talk about how Jesus is perhaps different by using questions, getting her to think. How does Jesus say we get right with God? How do you get in God's good books? How do you know him? Well, it says that Jesus, in John 3.16, he dies for our sins, and only if we believe in him do we know our salvation. Is that what it says in the Quran? It says here that Jesus has all authority 
in heaven and on earth. Is that what it says there? By using questions. Really, really helpful. So if you know our audience, then we can replace religion with relationship, and then finally we can be faithful to the message. One of the things that I was talking uh, with some of you the other week, some of you here this evening from Cornwall, okay, from, from Devon. Devon, they're right? I'll give me a head nod, okay? And, uh, and I was corrected uh, last week because I said, oh, you come from the land of the goddess Rhoda. Yeah? She makes clotted cream. Clotted cream. It is apparently... Um, an almost protected recipe. That's an aspect of, uh, you know, the world that I just, I'm really into food. And so I love the fact that some recipes, I don't know if that's true of clotted cream, uh, but they are so precious to a particular region, they are protected. They're worth protecting. The very recipe, you know. If you want to talk about a bacon pudding, you can't just call anything a bacon pudding, can you? Um, It's not the same as a bacon tart. Or, for example, you might want to think about Stilton or, or Wensleydale cheese. You know, I just want to stop and eat now. But um, some people think that these things are so precious, these foods, these recipes, so precious, that we need to say, you dare not change it or have an approximate recipe and call it by this name. No, no, no. It's so precious. It needs to be protected even by law. This is what the good news about Jesus is like and then some so infinitely precious that it's great to know our audience yeah it's great to start talking about our relationship with God but if we're not so faithful to the message we take people to Jesus we're changing the recipe we're missing out on the very best and part of our taking our friends to Jesus is like Paul is saying this Jesus is the only one who has authenticated his message, proving that it was true by saying, I will die for your sins, and so that you believe I really have done it, God the Father will raise me from the dead to show you this message really is true. And part of the uniqueness of that message is the message of grace. All these other religions, if you don't offer, including to the unknown God, the right stuff will be taji. This God says, are you asking the question, what can I do to get right with me, with God? Here's my answer, he says. Nothing. You are so beyond repair, you are so broken, that the only thing that you can do is trust me. And even I'll do that for you. And I think that makes Christianity the most joyful and yet the most depressing option out there. I think C.S. Lewis said something like this. The most depressing because if you came to me and told me when I was 14 years old, before I was a Christian, hey, you are messed up. I probably would have agreed with you. But if if you'd left it there, you're so messed up, you're so broken, you can't fix yourself. Every time you know what is right and you try to do it, you can only do it for so long and then you mess up again. And you can see that in all your relationships. And that is depressing. That's hopeless, right? But not only the most depressing, the most joyful. Because he says, look, this God is not so far from you. This God wants, he set the boundaries of nations in such a way that you can cry out to him now and he will hear. You can say sorry now 
and you will know him. That's where we finish. Compare this. It's what we would want our friends to do with any other religion in the hope that they seek to provide. And Christianity just come out, comes out on top every time. I may have told you before about this time when we took our youth group to a mosque and I had to ask the guy, you are so devout, you follow the five pillars. Do you know that if you died today, Allah would say, welcome? And he had to say, no. Because in my religion, I can do something so bad, so evil, outrageous on my, in my deathbed that it offsets every good that I've done. To someone like that, grace is such good news to know that the Jesus who rose from the dead is alive today and says to you, you can know my forgiveness. Even throughout the rest of your life after you start knowing me, you can know freedom from anxiety as you continue to preach to yourself and my spirit works in your heart. This is a God worth proclaiming. And as we finish and round everything off, if that's what you would want to share with a friend because you love them, with a family member because you love them, one of three things might happen. One, they might sneer. You see that? Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. There's some aspect of doctrine of the Christian faith that's offensive to other people. Maybe when some heard of what you think about the LGBT community or sexuality or um, some other thing, maybe they'll sneer. Perhaps, however, some of them will say, we want to hear you again. Do you know what? I'm not, I'm not ready yet. You've given me some big ideas here. Can I just come back to you on that? Let's have another coffee. Brilliant. And yet some of them, to our great joy and glory in Christ, they would believe. That's what we pray, that every time we speak about the God worth proclaiming, as we know our audience, as we replace religion with relationship, as we are faithful to the message, we are praying God will show us the third, people believing. Let's pray now for our friends, for our family, for those watching, perhaps for some here tonight, who really need to either be bolder in their witness of the gospel, or for those who need to believe for the first time. Just a moment for you to quieten your heart before we pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that this is true. You're raised from the dead and it shows that any who believe, they believe in the truth because no one else can do that. Thank you that you don't you don't despise questions. You welcome questions. And so we pray for those here this evening, our children, our young people, our adults who are here listening, that they would always know that they can ask any question they want because there is a reasonable, rational, engaging, worshipful answer that brings us closer to you in the scriptures. And so we pray for those of our Christians that they would be ever sharpened in their witness and their love of you. Help us to be bold, Father, please, because sometimes we are cowardly. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes, of course, our personality isn't uh, one that's boisterous and uh, talking to groups of people, but pray that you would give us courage in whatever personality we have in the context that we find ourselves in. Give us people that we want to share the gospel with. Father, for those who don't know you yet, may they salivate after 
this God, much better than simply an unknown God, but the God made known in Jesus. Thank you that you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.